This is Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood, certified financial planner and president of Smallwood Wealth Management. With more than 30 years of experience in helping people with wealth management, financial planning, business ownership, estate planning, insurance, and more, John's here to share the news you can use to improve your financial confidence. Now, best-selling author and six-time five-star wealth manager award winner, John L. Smallwood. Do you have a Swiss Army knife inflation strategy? Visualize for a second. This is not a simple one solution. This is a strategy which is going to require multiple gizmos. You all visualize a Swiss Army knife. You have one that has a little bit of stuff. You have one that has a lot of stuff. And you have the big mega Swiss Army that has like everything that you could possibly ever need at any point in time in life. And it works. Wonderful product. But we're not talking about that product. What we're talking about is this is a point in your financial life, whether you're on the accumulation side or you're on the distribution side, that you need to begin to think about how do I structure my plan in the fashion of a Swiss Army knife? How do I take multiple things and put them together to get a better outcome so I have the right tools to approach this strategy? And what people are forced into today is increasing risk to hit these strategies. And you necessarily don't want to do that. You don't want to increase risk at a point where markets are at their highest, interest rates are at their lowest, which means when interest rates rise, bond markets should fall. When the stock market hits a peak, sometimes it pulls back. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does, right? Interest rates to finance your home, the interest rates to put your money to work in a bank, all these things are at the lowest level that they've ever been. So what you want to think about is with financial pressure, the convergence of all of these things coming together at the same time is applying different pressure than it has in previous years. The introduction of inflation at much higher than normal rates has been pretty difficult. Well, what you're seeing is Social Security is going to pass on one of the greatest inflation increases that we've seen in a very long time. I think since like 1981 or something to the nature when the 10-year treasury was 15.8. So you had high inflation back in 1981. The 10-year treasury rate was 15.8%. And now the 10-year treasury is below 1.4. Completely different world with high inflation, right? If you could put your money to work at 15% and you had 10% inflation or 5 or 6% inflation, then why that's painful, it's not that painful compared to what we're dealing with now. So we always talk about, we always think about things. And this is what I want you to kind of think through today is we think about decisions typically one at a time. We make decisions one at a time, not understanding the big picture or the macro view of wealth. When we talk about successful implementation of a financial strategy, we talk about a couple of different criteria. The first goal that we always have is to reduce taxes. Taxes are one of the greatest destructors of wealth. We want to reduce risk. We want to reduce fees and costs. We want to help increase the savings rate. We want to increase the protection and benefits around the wealth. We want to increase the retirement income and we want to pass more to our families. And this is a point where that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but that's the criteria that when you're approaching new financial strategies, are we going to do these seven things? Are we going to reduce taxes? Are we going to reduce risk? Are we going to reduce fees and costs? 
Are we going to help increase the savings rate? Are we going to help increase the protection? Are we going to increase the retirement income? And are we going to pass more to our families? And I would argue that a successful plan has all of those elements to it. An unsuccessful plan has one or two of those elements in it. Meaning if I'm increasing taxes and I'm increasing risk and I'm increasing fees and costs, and I'm decreasing the amount of savings that I have and in decreasing my retirement income and passing less to my family, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Right. And that's what we're kind of doing. And inflation is one of those silent taxes that's stealing wealth by having people increase wealth, by having people increase withdrawal rates without having the supporting interest or returns that are out there in a low risk environment. And I've been doing this for, I don't know, 31, 32 years coming up here in uh, May of 2022. So I think I started in May of 1990 on a full time basis, worked in the industry prior to on some college internships. But the reality was here I am 31, 32 years of doing this. And I look back, right? And I look back on my career and I see how easy it was back in the early 90s when interest rates were six, seven, eight, nine percent when you had 5% CD rates, you had 5% municipal bond rates, you had all those things along that time frame that it was easy. You didn't know that it was easy because you were still comparing it back to the 80s when you had 15% rates. So what I've come to the conclusion is that when you build the financial strategy, and I've always had this conclusion, this has been here for a long time. It's in the book. It's in It's Your Wealth, Keep It. It's in Five Ways Your Boss Under Attack. It's in a bunch of the white papers. It's on the website. It's all over the place, right? The financial pressure, depending upon where it comes, right? And we talk about this, and I want you to think through this for a second from the standpoint of financial pressure right now, if I have a million dollar portfolio and I was taking a 4% withdrawal rate, there's that rule that we all talk about that, oh, that's the magic rule. In a lot of cases, it's not. So million dollars producing $40,000 worth of income, not that exciting. Inflation hits and basically says, oh, in order to meet the inflationary pressures that are put on my plan, I've got to take a larger withdrawal. So now I might have to bump it up to five, five and a half percent which we know is now putting pressure on reducing the probability of the outcome. Then you might be going through different tax brackets or we might get an increased tax bracket, which is gonna apply more pressure. And then when I look under the hood at where the money's invested, in order to get those types of returns, most people are rushing towards a higher risk level, so therefore greater potential for loss, and that it's creating additional fees and costs in a lot of cases in order to go after some of these other strategies. Some of the riskier strategies are more expensive and not necessarily there. Some of the lower risk strategies are more expensive also. And just because you have an expense doesn't mean it's bad. You have to understand what value do you get for the expense in exchange. There's nothing that is good and bad. You know what I'm saying? Like it's how you apply the financial strategy and product into a strategy that's going to make it better or worse than the other one. It's that harmonious mix, right? So when you start thinking about it, most people have a house, most people have some sort of portfolio, qualified, non-qualified IRA, non-IRA. They have maybe a pension, they have social security. And if you're already retired, there's really not much that you're going to do about maximizing your social security. You're either going to take the benefit or you're going to defer the benefit. A couple of podcasts, you know how I feel about that. Take it. Take it now. Take the pension now. But once you take these things, for example, most of the pensions that we're going to encounter are going to have no inflationary rise on them. So they're going to be flatlining. So the money that we have is going to be under pressure. I did a guide called 
I think it's 19 sources of retirement income. We were thinking of another way to think through this. But the guide basically has, and it's available on the website, 19 sources of retirement income. The idea is if I have the opportunity to have these sources of income in my plan where where I'm not increasing the probability of running out of money, where I'm not passing less to my family, my income is more tax efficient, I'm not increasing risk to get the additional income. Those are things that you want to explore and see how does this work in my plan? Because as I say every day, the next 15 years is the most important 15 years that you have. If you're accumulating wealth, it's what you do in your job, what you do in your career, how you set your company up, how you make your company more profitable, the amount of money that you accumulate. Once you accumulate it, it's how you spend it and how you enjoy it. And then ultimately, it's how you pass that money on. And if you're in retirement phase now, it's like, okay, I'm 65, I'm 70, I'm 75. I want this money to last as long as I last and I want it to last as long as my spouse lasts. And the last thing, the last nightmare that I would ever have in my plan is running out of money. And that's what we want to prevent in almost every case. If we can do that, sometimes you can't. But the idea is that's what you're trying to accomplish. So when you start to think about it is traditional inflation strategies are, you know, you either increase withdrawals or you increase the return, which is not necessarily easy. But with the increased return comes increased risk. So this is where you start to think about if tax rates go up, how do I get around it? If I'm pulling all that money from an IRA and tax rates go up, I pay more tax. And then if I have higher inflation, it's a double kick in the head. Okay. When I talk about the Swiss Army approach to the financial strategy, looking at the macro picture, one of the things that we talk about in the macro chapter six of It's Your Wealth, Keep It, we talk about the macro plan, the big picture plan, the balance plan. If I can get to retirement and have a certain percentage of my assets in life insurance that has a significant death benefit, maybe equal to 50 or 75% of my total net worth. So let's just use for an example, person is worth $1.5 million. You know, 500,000 is in the house, a million dollars is in the portfolio. If 200,000 of that portfolio or 250,000 of that portfolio was in paid for life insurance, you probably have a paid for death benefit in the area of a million dollars. So the question is, how do I use that death benefit while I'm alive? Because most people are thinking through it and saying, well, I'll cash in the 200K and see if I can get a higher return on that and see if I can go move it somewhere else. Because I don't want to make my kids rich or my wife doesn't need the death benefit or all these misconceived things because we don't understand what's going on. Sometimes the policies are crap and you do need to get out of them. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's not that good. But the idea is, if I think through that, that life insurance policy death benefit is permanent, meaning it's going to be here till I'm not here. On an in-force illustration, it runs to 100 or 120, depending upon when that policy was printed and put into place. So therefore, we know that that death benefit is going to come in in the future, but we don't know the time, date, or location. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that it's going to happen. I mean, everybody that's listening to the podcast will not be here at some point. And the idea is, well, how do I use it while I'm alive? Can I use that to be more strategic? And typically what we do is we look at the cash value and say, how can I increase the value of that cash value? And depending on the life insurance policy that you have, the dividends can be tax-free, a surrender can be tax-free, a policy loan is tax-free, 
and you can generate tax-free income from that policy. Okay, and that's the micro, and that's what people look at. But let's say the policy has two hundred fifty thousand in it, and the death benefit's a million. So the net death benefit is seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. I'm sitting here. I see TV ads to sell my policy. Maybe I'll get more than the two fifty. Why? Why do they want to buy that from me? Because they know it's going to happen. The question is time, date, location. It's a valuable asset, right? So you start to think back and think with me for a second. So my ultimate goal. If I'm worth 1.5 million, I'd like to pass the 1.5 million to the kids. If I'm worth 15 million, I'd like to pass the 15 million to the family. If I'm worth 150 million, same is true. And the only reason that you wouldn't want to do that is because you'd rather enjoy the capital. You'd rather give it to a charity. In most cases, people want to give it to their family. So I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the hardest point in my career for retirement income planning. It is the hardest point ever. Interest rates are the lowest. Inflation is high. Risk is high. There's not a lot of options. The question is like, where do I put money? Where do I put money? So if we had the money sitting there and like I had this plan in play and I have this death benefit of 750,000, the net death benefit, and there's a tool out there that has a lot of advertising that's called the reverse mortgage. So I got a house that's worth 500K. That house cost me so much money to maintain it. And people convince ourselves that we're going to downsize the house and we're going to sell. And we're going to take, you know, we're going to go down, we're going to leave the Northeast and we're going to get lower taxes, which might be the best thing for you, period, end of story anyway. Okay. But the reality is the kids are here and you want to stay in the area where your family is and you want to enjoy it, but you're feeling pressure and you have a garage full of crap. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But the idea is this, the house costs you a certain amount of money, but the house has really unique tax benefits associated with it, right? During the accumulation phase, I was writing off the mortgage interest deduction. Prior to the SALT deduction limitation or cap, I was able to write off the entire property taxes of that. When I sell the house, the current tax law has each individual, husband and wife, can take a $250,000 capital gain exclusion as long as it's been your primary residence the last two out of the last five years. I can do that. I can sell a house today, buy a new one tomorrow, wait two years and sell that house at a $500,000 capital gain exclusion. So that's like extremely valuable. That's one of the components that's making real estate very valuable. So is the low interest rate environment. But the idea here is this. I love my house. I want to stay in my house. I want to stay in the community. I want to be here. I've got this $750,000 death benefit. And depending on the program, and you want to talk to reverse mortgage specialists, but I want you to get the idea of if I don't do the reverse mortgage and I die, family's going to get the million dollars. They're going to get the $500,000 house and they're going to get my $750,000 worth of insurance. So we're going to pass $2,250,000. The purpose of my estate plan is not to pass more than my net worth. The purpose is to pass my net worth. Like if I'm worth 1.5 million, let's pass 1.5 million. If I'm worth 10 million, let's pass to 10 million. But let's not pass 20 million, let's pass 10. My father said to me years ago, he's like, if I don't do this, that means you inherit more and I enjoy less between now and my demise. <laughs> That's so true, but I'd like to inherit more. So I think about that, right? So let's say that we turn on a reverse mortgage you know, there's home equity, reverse mortgage line of credit. There's a monthly annuity. There's a lot of crap out there. So you really want to make sure that you are working with somebody that can give you unfettered guidance on this where pros and cons, and you want to get the pros and cons of this. But the idea is this, 
let's say I do the reverse mortgage, I'm 70, I might get $24,000, $25,000 a year in income from the reverse mortgage. Go back to my $40,000 withdrawal. If I got $24,000 additional money and the reverse mortgage is tax-free, what's the jump in my retirement life? How exciting is that? It's over 50% increase in the income, but it doesn't affect my taxes. It doesn't throw me into a higher tax bracket. It doesn't push me out. And when I die and my wife dies, we can do a joint. We can do it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a scenario where we had people that were about six, seven years apart in age that were married. Well, you do it on the older person because the younger person is going to live longer. But depending on the math, you want to look at the math. But the idea is all of a sudden, I'm getting this $24,000 and I live 20 years that thing is going to pay out somewhere in the neighborhood of 480000 And the family is going to owe interest on that and the fees to set it up. So let's say it's 600000 and I die. The death benefit comes in. Family wants the house. There's a lien against the house for whatever the reverse mortgage paid out. And I either love the house and I want it back. Here's a check bank. Or I go, oh, it's yours. I'll take the cash. I'd prefer the cash. Here's the Swiss Army knife, right? Big truck going by. Two big trucks going by. It's leaf season. So you start to think about, okay, so I could do the reverse mortgage. Visualize this for a second. I got 200,000 sitting in a cash account making less than 1%, or I got it in bonds that's making 1.4%. How much income is that really producing? And I'm probably spending down that capital. So let's say I got 300,000, that's at 2%, right? So that's $6,000 a year. That's not enough income for me. Again, I've got more death benefit. So I say, let's take 200 of the 300 and put it somewhere like at an immediate annuity or some fixed index annuity or one of these other products out there that can give me a guaranteed higher income. And maybe I get, you know, because I'm 70, maybe I get 10000 or $12,000 a year, depending upon the strategy and the annuity of additional capital. And when I die, the death benefit replaces the asset that I did. So Swiss Army, charitable remainder trust, I can give highly appreciated stock or assets, real estate, to a charitable remainder trust, get a big tax deduction, get a lifetime income. When I die, we lose the access to that capital or, or the income, but the life insurance would replace it. So you start deploying, the success comes from saying, I wanna put my money to work in the best investment vehicles with the least amount of risk that are most tax efficient. I wanna generate as much tax efficient, tax available, tax free income that I possibly can get my hands on. How do I get inflation protection? I can reduce taxes or increase net after tax income. That's an inflation hedge. I can reduce expenses. I can have a strategy that over time reduces my taxes because I'm spending principal down. I'm getting more and more principal back and less and less interest. These are things that are in the guide and they're here to basically say is the only thing I know is that we're born and we pass away. That's the only thing that I know that's actually true. I might be missing something, but taxes are not necessarily. I think our last president did a pretty good job of losing a ton of money at some point, so he'll never pay taxes again. But he had to lose that money in order to get those tax benefits. So there's pros and cons to everything, right? But the idea here is that you want to look at this thing and say, I can't rely just on returns to be my inflationary hedge. I can't rely on the stock market to be my inflationary hedge. I can't rely on rising interest rates. I might not make it for interest rates to rise. I mean, people are saying in our lifetimes, we won't see higher interest rates. You also need to look at, and this is something that as you think about it, in the inflation number, 
is not your inflation number. That's right. The inflation that the government's telling us is not your inflation number. You have your own unique inflation number that you were basically sitting here and saying, I buy certain items. Those are my preferences. I have kids in college. I have kids in high school. I have kids that are driving cars. You have multiple things that are going on and you have your own personal rate of inflation. So my inflation rate might be closer to 10 or 11% and yours might be three or four based on where I live, where I shop, how I spend my money, the things that I'm buying. If I'm buying healthcare, healthcare is going up at a rapid rate. If I'm buying fuel, fuel has gone up at a rapid rate. If I buy milk and cheese, that's gone up. If I buy beef, that's going up. But if I don't buy those things, it's different. So I want you to really understand this, like you have your own inflation rate and you should really look at assuming you bought the same stuff at the grocery store last year as you bought this year. What was the increase of your expenses? What did your real estate taxes do? What did your insurance costs do? What did your health care costs do? Figure it out. That's your own personal inflation rate and what's coming. And how am I going to mitigate the impact of that inflation or increased taxes or increased health care costs or whatever it's going to be? We know the stuff is coming. The question is, how do we take the knife out? Which tool do I use? Which one do I use? And a lot of times I find myself with a Swiss Army knife. I can use one or two of those tools for a lot of different jobs. But there's like the specialty tool that if you just understood how to use the right tool for the job, you get a much better outcome. And we talk about that in financial services. You know, you have the knife, you have all these options. How do you use it? How do you use the right tool at the right time? And how do you prepare yourself to be versatile enough, to be flexible enough to basically deploy things in the future when they make the most sense. I wanna be prepared for the unknown. Well, how do I be prepared for the unknown is I have the best plan with the most amount of options today. And then tomorrow, I have flexibility. So when we come back to this and think about the foundation of the plan, if I'm in accumulation phase, how do I grow my wealth with the least amount of taxes, the least amount of risk, the least amount of fees and costs? How do I increase my savings rate? This is a time where you go through and you look at that 12-month spending and go, did I really need to spend money the way I spent money? Did I get the, as I like to call, the marginal utility? Did I get the enjoyment, the utils? Did I enjoy the way I spent my money? If I didn't, I got to rethink it, right? Now, do I have that protection that I need? Do I have the possibility of increased retirement income from over the trajectory that I'm on today, the line that I'm following to take me to my outcome is it going to put me in that three, three and a half percent rule that everybody's talking about now that used to be the 4% rule? Or can I collectively enjoy more money and still pass a lot of money to my family? Don't know until you do a simulation. So the idea is what's available for everybody that's listening to this is you can actually set up a free, no obligation, wealth curve conversation with a qualified financial advisor that will walk you through a 30, 40 minute conversation about you, your family, your financial decisions, the money that you have, the money that you have to spend in the future for college and weddings or whatever. Understand the protection and understand where you are. And then from there, you really know, well, 
I should go down and have a wealth curve blueprint built and a scorecard and I should do some simulation strategies to see if I can deploy strategies that do the seven things. That's a decision that everybody's going to come to, but we're coming into a point of the year as I record this where we start to feel grateful for the things that have happened to us. We start to think about our goals for the next year and how are we going to improve what we do. Right. And that's what we kind of are always focusing on. How do we improve the outcome? How do we get a better outcome with less risk, less taxes, less fees, less costs and have more enjoyment over the money that I've worked for for so darn long? So that's available on the website. You go to smallwoodwealth.com. You can click on there. There's an automatic calendar schedule. There's an 800 number that you can call, 800-797-1000. And you can talk to anybody that answers the phone and they can get you scheduled. You can send us an email at clientservices.smallwoodwealth.com and say, hey, I need to get in touch with you. You can do that. You can call us old school at 732-542-1565. You can run into us in the street, whatever. It's all fun. And this is about you and what you want to achieve. And our job is to help you achieve that or to be realistic with you and say, I get your goals, but we need to change some things that sometimes that's what happens. And on the other end of the spectrum, I'm like, you need to spend a lot more money than you're currently spending because your kids are going to back the truck up and spend it all in five years. So before they spend it, you should have some little more enjoyment. (laughs) In closing, I want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas with your families. And I want to make sure that everybody has a wonderful new year and that we approach the new year in a way that we really get our financial plan on track and we have those regular check-ins and check-ups to make sure that we're on the right track and reassess. So thank you and have a wonderful day. It's your wealth. Keep it. The best-selling book by John L. Smallwood, the definitive guide to growing, protecting, enjoying, and passing on your wealth. Find it on Amazon now or go to smallwoodwealth.com for more retirement resources. Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood is brought to you by Smallwood Wealth Management, an investment advisor representative. Strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone, and the information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action as information and or opinion are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Smallwood Wealth Management provides content that is true and accurate as of the date of publishing. However, we give no assurance or warranty regarding the accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this website or podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, misleading, or defamatory statements.